Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good to see you guys. You guys doing good? All right, now that you're uh, loosened up, ready to go, let's get to it. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is where we left off last week. Part 2 of our look at marriage, the gospel, and the glory of God. It's good to see that you came back, at least some of you anyway. Um, And uh, I just want to tag on to what Reynolds and Will said. Hey, stick around for lunch. Uh, One of the things that's been difficult is we as a church have grown. In fact, we're approaching our seventh anniversary as a church. We started off with just about 15 or 20 folks uh, early on getting together for organizational meetings in my wife and I's living room and started off that first year about 50 folks or so. And as we've grown, one of the hard things to do is to have people to get to know each other. And so today would be a great day to stick around and just love on somebody, get to meet somebody. If you're not in a community group, this would be a great time to maybe seek out a community group, uh, get to know somebody, and, um, and sink your, your roots in here. So well, that's a great, great thing to do. Hey, while you're finding Ephesians chapter 5, by the way, if you're using one of the Bibles in the rack of the chair in front of you, that's on page 690. And I'd love for you to follow along if you don't have a Bible. And if, if you don't have a Bible, you don't own one, take that Bible. It's our gift to you. Use it. Take it as yours and read it. It'd be great. It'd be, it'd be really good for you, I think, to follow along. And that's how I think I became familiar with where verses and scriptures and books of the Bible are early on as a Christian as I just started following along on Sunday mornings in addition to reading it for myself. Hey, as you're, as you're finding it, we've got a young soldier and his lovely wife over there in the back corner, Paul and Heather Bingham. He just recently finished Ranger School, told you that a couple weeks ago, and today's their last Sunday. Raise your hand, Paul and Heather. Um, they are moving on to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he's going to be a platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne Division, which is one of, yeah, whoa, Airborne, and, um, which is one of our great Army divisions, and uh, so they're going to Fort Bragg. Love on them. Give them a hug. Heather is, yeah, give them, give them a hand. Heather's going to have a baby here sometime this summer or fall, and, um, and so just pray for them as they go. It's just a reminder to pray for our young men and women in the military that are serving us very bravely, and uh, we're just very thankful, as always, for our military. Uh, what a great, what, what, just what a blessing it is to, to interact with these young soldiers um, who are just top-notch. Very grateful for you guys, so... Um, and we'll get to see, Lord willing, Paul and Heather in a few years as he comes back to Benning again for his next course in three or four years. It's just great to see all these soldiers coming through Benning. Well, all right, let's, uh, let's get to it. I'm going to read the text. Remember what we did last week. Um, we, we looked at sort of the 30,000-foot theology behind marriage, just some overarching statements, and we kind of made a couple points there, and I'm not going to rehash them. I, I'm not going to just go through it again, but the, the sort of a, a, a quick summary was that men and women are created equal in personhood and importance, and that God creates man and woman together, and he tells them to rule over the earth, and, and so men and women are equal in their value and essence before God. We're also equal in our sin and fallenness, and we both need Jesus as our, as our mediator between our holy and righteous creator God. And we also then looked at how marriage goes far beyond just sort of an institution to help society function better. It it really models something 
eternal and divine. It models, it, it is a reflection of the Trinity, of the relationship between, between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, how there's this mutual submission and joy in this fellowship of the Trinity, God, three in one. And we also then looked at how then a man is to treat his wife as Christ treats the church, laying down his wife, life for his wife, and that this is ultimately a reflection of the gospel. That's what marriage is about, like everything. From him and through him and to him are all things, Romans eleven thirty six. To him be the glory forever and ever. And so marriage exists for the glory of God. Everything, in fact, exists ultimately to display the glory of God. And then we looked at finally the fact that even though men and women are created equal, and that marriage goes beyond just its earthly institution, ultimately men and women, although equal, are created different and have complementary roles. And so that's what we're going to try and unpack today a little bit more specifically with more application. Now here's the deal, guys. Um, here's the tension I always feel when we're speaking about a particular life topic, whether it be marriage or whatever, spiritual gifts as we go through books of the Bible and issues come up, I hope you notice that there's always this tug and tension here at Crosspoint where we want to tether, we want to tie everything, we want to ground everything in the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to reconcile a lost people to himself for his glory and their eternal joy. And so... We have a sort of, of, of way of, of explaining it here at Crosspoint that the gospel is like the hub of a wheel. It is the center. It's, it's, it's the, from which everything else flows. That's the central truth of the scriptures. It's the most important thing in the universe, what God is doing and has done in Christ on the cross in his death and his burial and his resurrection to reconcile a lost people to himself for his glory. That's the main point of everything. That's Romans eleven thirty six. From him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so then when you're looking at a particular topic in life, whether it be marriage or finances or controlling your emotions or whatever it may be, if it isn't tethered to the gospel, then it just sort of is standing alone. It sort of orbits as a meteor out in space colliding with things and it doesn't really have any purpose. But when we tether everything, every issue in life, every point of doctrine to the gospel, then it begins to have its proper order and make sense. And so we want to think about marriage today, not just so that we can have better marriages, but so that we can more graciously and more clearly reflect the goodness of our God and commend the goodness of his grace in the gospel, what he has done for us. Do you see that? Do you see? And so remember, as we've been working through Ephesians, that everything that we're looking at in chapters 4, 5, and 6 rest on the imperatives, the gospel truth that Paul laid out in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. Of Ephesians. That everything that he's calling us to do, to be good husbands and to be good wives, is only possible as we remember as what Christ has done for us on the cross. So it's important. I always feel this tension because every week people wander into this church, just come here in God's providence, and they've never, I think, truly heard the gospel. And this is their first Sunday, and so there's always this tension that they need to hear about Jesus. They don't need to just hear about what it means to be a good husband. They need to hear about Jesus. And I feel that tension today. And then as I mentioned last week, I just want to encourage you, if you're single here today, that you're not a second-class citizen, 
that marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not final. In fact, marriage is not even eternal in the way we know it on earth. Jesus says in the Gospels that in the resurrected life, glory, being with him forever, we won't be married. We will, we will be satisfied with him forever and ever and ever. And so even marriage is a temporary shadow of an eternal reality. So uh, I want you to be encouraged today and know that Jesus was single and he was the most complete and satisfied and happy human being to ever live. Well, let's read Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, we we come to you now very humbly because of what Jesus has done for us in taking away our sin as far as the east is from the west, as Kwame read earlier this morning. Lord, we know that that's not a universal promise for all human beings just because they're alive. That only applies to people who have trusted in Jesus, whose hope is in Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection. And so we come to you now asking you to help us with this topic and issue that is charged with uh, debate and emotion and misunderstanding. Ultimately, though, it's about your glory and display of your grace to us. So help us untangle ourselves from the cultural pretzel that we often find ourselves in. And I pray ultimately that we wouldn't dead end on tips on how to navigate through an earthly successful marriage alone, but that ultimately we would be propelled to look up and see Jesus and that this would stir affection and humility and Christ-likeness in both husbands and wives and singles in this room and ultimately for people who do not know Jesus that even today as we're talking about 
biblical marriage and manhood and womanhood, that you, Lord, would be so kind as to cause somebody to go from spiritual death and condemnation to life and eternal joy. I pray, Lord, that you would do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people and for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name. And Lord, and as I pray, I, I just remember Don McKelvey at Ebenezer Baptist Church ministering up there as their inter, interim pastor. Pray for Don, our dear brother, that you would be with Don and Terry this morning as he preaches there. Help us now by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, just as a summary from last week, I went over that, but two, we asked two questions, and we're going to unpack the, the application of these two questions. The first is, what does it mean for a woman to submit to her husband? Now, we looked at that word there in verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Um, and so what does it mean for a woman to submit to her husband? And we came up with a definition that I, that I just copied straight out of a book that we have for sale in our resource center, uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, by, edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And it's a compilation of many different articles on all of the different verses in the Bible that speak to this issue of manhood and womanhood. And in the introduction to that book, I think they offer a very good definition of submission to kind of reorient it. So let me read it again. I read it last week. It says, submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. She submits out of reverence for Christ, as we read in Ephesians 5.21. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of her husband. She should never follow her husband into sin. Nevertheless, even when she may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, for example, in 1 Peter 3, where she does not yield to her husband's unbelief, she can still have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting her will his will, and that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. Okay, so that's what we kind of ended on last week, and we're going to unpack that here in a second. And then the second question that we asked last week is, what does it mean for the husband to be the head of his wife? And that's what clearly the scriptures say in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And we came up with this definition again, just copied right out of the introduction of that excellent book. They write, in the home, biblical headship is the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision. Okay, so that's what we ended with last week. Now we're going to unpack a little bit and try and apply what this looks like. And here's what I want you to realize. I'm going to spend the vast majority of the next few minutes talking about how this text applies to men. Because if you notice in these verses 23 through 23, most of it is aimed at men. It starts off and it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. And then the rest of it is about how men are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so the thrust, the force of these 12 verses is laid squarely at men. So then let's unpack it a little bit. What does Christ-like leadership look like 
for the husband? That's the first question that we want to consider. What does Christ-like leadership, actually on the ground, in the home, look like for the husband? And as I give you just a few thoughts here, I just want to confess my own inadequacy, my own um, very much in-process state in this. Uh, it's a, it can be a sort of trembling, fearful, very humbling thing for a young man whose life is very much in process to get up in front of his wife and children who knows the <laughs> just the weakness and frailty of his life. And um, in situations like these, I could go two ways. I could spend the whole day kind of just sort of overly humble and confessing my own sin and repentance and sort of mumbling along, just sort of mealy-mouthing it, which would not serve you well. You might come away thinking, oh, Brad, that was so humble, but you wouldn't be helped by it. It was almost kind of false humility. Um, or I can just sort of lean on the authority of the text and let it run through my heart as well as yours. But just a sort of caveat, carte blanche up the front, and that's not the right word, but just a sort of preliminary statement of saying, I am very much in process in this. And uh, I've spent this last week in conviction, letting this run through the, through the grid of my own um, very much incomplete sanctification. What does Christ-like leadership look like for a husband? Number one, I think there is, we can imply that it means that he takes the initiative. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Before we even think about what Christ's love looks like in our lives and how then it should look like for husband and wife, I think we need to understand that that. Before we loved Jesus, he loved us. It says that several places in the New Testament in 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus, God, takes the initiative by coming to us when we are in a ditch in sin, running away from him. And so the first way that a a husband, I think, is to lead like Jesus leads his bride, the church, is to take the initiative. He takes the initiative. He comes to his wife. He comes to her in problem solving. It doesn't mean that you have to be the smartest guy in the relationship. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and just bet that most of you are not. (laughs) Clearly, clearly, the vast majority of wives are smarter than their husbands. In fact, maybe that might even be 100% in this room. (laughs) Clearly, you don't have to be the smartest guy in in the duo. But that doesn't release us from the responsibility to initiate solving problems. When there's an issue in the family, it is the husband's responsibility to not let it fester, whether it's an issue with the child, whether it's an issue with the home, whether it's an issue financially. Men are masters at sticking their heads in the sand and just hoping the problem goes away, and it never does. So men are to take the initiative in problem solving. Men are to take the initiative in discipline in the home with children. Men are to take the initiative in conflict resolution with others and with his wife. Hard conversations with your parents or in-laws about boundaries. That should not be the sole responsibility of the wife disputes with a feisty neighbor or a coach or a teacher conference should not be relegated to the wife. 
Now, she may be articulate, and she may have a softer touch, and she, it might be better for her to be the, the face of that conversation, but it is the man's responsibility to initiate and to not sort of hide in the background, stick his head in the sand. And Jesus didn't have to do this for his bride, but we see the pattern of initiative and Every man needs to do this for his bride. Ultimately, a man needs to initiate repentance to his wife. When a husband and wife are in a ditch, regardless of whose fault it is, regardless of who's bearing the majority of the sin in that particular argument, when a husband and wife are in a ditch and sideways and just stuck, it is the man's responsibility to repent and to come to his wife. Three or four years ago, a couple in this church that's very dear to me took me, uh, we went up to the Atlanta area to meet a friend of theirs who was a pastor of theirs um, years ago who's a, just, a, just a wonderful pastor and preacher. And the five of us had lunch and it was just kind of like sitting at the feet of the master listening to this guy about pastoral ministry and I asked him about raising kids and being married in the ministry and the pressures just how do I navigate through those tricky waters how do I how do I pastor so that my kids don't hate the church when they grow up or that my wife isn't you know bitter and how do I not make how do I navigate through those waters and you know I was looking for some little checklist or something and, I, and he just gave me what I think is some of the wisest advice I've ever heard and it's not just for a pastor it's for every man he said be the best example of repentance that your family sees. Be the best, the best way you can serve them is to be the, the best example of repentance, of asking for forgiveness, of coming to them, of humility that your family sees. The first way that I think this text shows us that a man leads is by leading, by taking the initiative, and often that is leading in repenting. Secondly, he sacrifices. He sacrifices. This is what the scriptures say here in verse 25 that we read. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. He, he laid down his very life. He sacrifices his time. His hobbies don't come before his family. He, he's not the kind of guy that orients his Saturdays in the fall around sequestering himself in his man cave so that he can watch 19 and 20-year-old boys run around in tight pants throwing around a piece of leather. Right? And, and look, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not bashing football. <laughs> I mean, I, I know a little bit about that. And, and he's not the type of guy who, who's just emotionally absent during hunting season. And I'm not banging on hunting. I'm just saying that his hobbies and his comfort are prioritized appropriately as he sacrifices for his family. His energy. He sacrifices his energy. And, and men, this is, this is a fight. To, you notice how it just seems that it's just part of the way our culture and our sin nature is organized, just a flesh is that it just seems like when you're driving home at 5 or 6 o'clock, you're just kind of 
just like powering down and you're tired from a long day of work. And when you walk in the door, you just feel, you know, you're hungry, you're grumpy, you're tired, you're frustrated. And doesn't it just seem like the people that you love the most actually get the worst end of your day? Isn't that, I mean, am I the only one? Can I get a north-south from any of you? Just give me something to encourage. And men, I, I think about that a lot in my own life, how, boy, I can be Mr. Sunshine around you guys. And when I get home and I'm tired and I'm grumpy and I'm frustrated because something hasn't gone real well or at the end of the day I had this appointment or I counseled with someone or whatever, and now I just kind of want to sit on the couch and veg. Just give me, it's my time. This is my time. I Just give me, I need my, men, if you are a Christian and you are a husband and a father, there is no time that is your time. It, you, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A man has no claim to his time. And so we have to, we have to fight. I mean, whatever you need to do, man, fight against this, whether it's maybe... I mean, I've even taken just little logistical steps. I've, I mean, when I was down in Haiti, when we were at our, uh, that weekend, and uh, Jason Branch and Will Brooks were, every day at lunch, they would pop out these awesome little cliff bar, nutrition bars. And I was looking at them like, man, that looks good. I've never had one of those. I came back home, and I mean, they didn't share with me. They were just eating it right in front of me. They wouldn't even give me one. <laughs> I was giving them all the clues in the world. Can I have one of those? No, man, you got to pack your own lunch. But anyway, so, so I, I go home and I, like, I need like a little snack at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock so that I don't go home and I'm grumpy just wanting food and couch, right? And so maybe it's just some, some little thing to get your metabolism going so that you don't just walk in the door a grump. Or maybe it's, maybe it's tuning your heart and listening to Scripture on the way home that you're starting to decompress a little bit. Maybe it's getting in the routine of praying as you're driving home so that you can fight. And it is a fight, man. It is a fight to fight that, that lull in your day that ends up giving the ones that you love the most the worst. I, I tell you, I was um, deeply convicted uh, about a year ago. Um, I get up every Sunday morning and I preach, you know, and you guys kind of see the best of me. Uh, hopefully, and uh, you're like, wow, that's the best of you, whoa. <laughs> but, you know, after I preach, I kind of, kind of, kind of crash a little bit and sort of start to power down, and, um, and I, you know, I, I've been known to, I've been known to check out emotionally on, on Sundays after church, it's happened once or twice, and we were still here in the building, and people were here, I'm like, hey, see you later, huh? hey, see you later, bye-bye, mm, kissing babies, you know, running for you. And then everybody was gone, and it was my boys. It was just me and my two oldest boys, and, and I had to make sure the, the doors were closed and the lights were off. And as soon as the last person went out the door, I just went into, like, you know, you know drill sergeant mode. Hey, boys, make sure those doors are locked, turn out the lights, let's go. I want to go home. And they're like, you know, just little, you know, task. Ma- and then somebody... About 30 seconds, the last person had walked out. 30 seconds later, they needed to come back in the church because they had forgot something. The door was already locked. And so they were like pounding at the door. I come in. So I, went, I opened the door. I'm like, hey, brother, how you doing? I perked back up. How you doing? What's going on? I mean, come on. Yeah. Can we pray again? I mean, you know. And then we did their thing, and then they left again. And I'm like, boys. <laughs> and my boys, like, my, one of them looked at me, and they're just like, 
just busted my chops, called me out. He said, Dad, man, hey, why is it when church folks are around, you're like Mr. Sunshine, and then when he walks out the door, you're just back into taskmaster mode. Yeah, yeah. I, I know, I know what that's like. It's a fight. It's, it's difficult, brothers, to give your family the best of your moods. It is. Um, But uh, a Christ-like leadership looks like sacrificing that, working that into your life somehow so that you fight for your mood, for your wife and children. Thirdly, um, he protects. He protects. Verse 28 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Like you, we all know what it means. I mean, if you're going to get hit, man, we, we know what it means to, to protect ourselves. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that a man should, should protect his wife because she is one flesh with him. So, so there's a couple applications here. Physically, he protects her. He's the one that takes the punch. He's the one that that opens the door. He's the one that waits on her. He's the one who stands up. Piper, in his book, Momentary Marriage, which we sell in the bookstore, has this beautiful little, little uh, uh, real convicting, just great little story where he talks about if there's a bump in the, in the night, man, it's the man who goes downstairs or gets up and checks on it. He says, your, your wife may be a black belt in karate and you may be a 98-pound weakling, but you, you go take the shot, man. You go get knocked out by the burglar and then let her finish him off, but it's your responsibility. <laughs> it's your responsibility, man. I mean, I mean, who, who's laying in bed at night and there's a bump and there's some noise and you lean over to your wife, as Piper says in this little story, and he says, honey, I went last night. Tonight's your turn. No, a man physically protects his wife to the best of his ability. But, but even more than that, this protection goes so far beyond just physically. I think much more deeper is that he is to protect his wife and his children spiritually. Spiritually. He's to guard the gate. He's the shepherd of that pasture. And wolves are barking at the gate of every pasture. He's willing to lay down his life. He watches over what comes into his house through the TV or the internet. He watches over the influence. He takes the spiritual temper, temperature of his family. He's thinking along these lines. I don't know if there's any way in this particular passage that it more makes me think about the gospel and how Jesus loves us. This is what Romans chapter 5, let me read Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 11 say about how Jesus protects us spiritually. And notice what he's protecting us from in this instance, not the wolf of the enemy, but from the righteousness and wrath of God the Father. Listen to this in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that 
While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, his bride. That's who we are. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more, listen to this, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So friends, at the very heart of this, what's being displayed here for a man protecting his wife is ultimately Jesus protecting his people from the just and right condemnation of a holy and righteous God the Father. Friends, that's the gospel. Do you see that? Jesus is laying down his life on the cross to take, to absorb the hit of the condemnation the wrath of God that is rightfully ours because we are born sinners. And friends, this, this, listen, if you came in here and you, you didn't know what you were getting today and you thought, oh, this is just going to be a cute little message on how to be married and happy and blah, blah, blah. No, friends, ultimately, as I mentioned before, everything is tethered to the gospel. Do you see how at its core marriage and the relationship between a man and a wife is to be a sort of shadow, a commendation of the gospel? And when a man protects, when he lays down his life, when he takes the hit for his family, he is commending, he is pointing a dead and dying world to Jesus' work on the cross. And that's what Jesus ultimately does for us. So friends, listen, my, my primary concern this morning is that you understand who Jesus is. That that's what he does for his people. That he lays down his life and he intercepts not only the evil one, but much more concerning to us, and we don't understand this, much more concerning to us than evil is the righteousness of a holy and righteous God. That's our greater problem, is how we have offended our creator through our rebellion of him, and all of us have done it, whether it's been obvious public sin or whether it's internal self-righteousness. Far greater of a problem for the human soul is not the devil. It is the righteousness of a holy creator whom we have all rebelled against. And Jesus, I mean, it's like the devil is mincemeat for him. That's just trinkets for him. But he lays down his life absorbing the right wrath of a holy God. He lays down and absorbs absorbs our condemnation for our sake and for his glory. Friends, that is the heart of the gospel. And I venture to say that is not understood well by a lot of American Christians because we just think, add Jesus to your life and you kind of get 2.0 me, version of me. No, no, friends. Everything exists for the glory of God. Listen, the universe is not about a, a sort of battle between good and evil where Jesus is like 50% power and the devil's 50% power and they kind of battle it out and Jesus barely hits a free throw at the end in Revelation and we win. No, friends, that's not how it is. Look, God is in control of everything and even evil is underneath his sovereign plan. Even evil, Proverbs says that he has created everything for his purpose, even the, day, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And so everything serves the glory of God. And so a much bigger problem for us than evil is the holiness of God. And who will stand between you and a holy and righteous father? Will it be your own morality? Will it be your church attendance? Will it be the Bible verses that you memorize? Or will it be the work of God the Son in the perfect flesh of his obedience taking the hit for you, protecting you, not just from evil, but from a righteous creator? If you have not done that, 
friends, if that's not between you and your creator, the work of the Son, and oh, man, do not pass go. Do not collect 200. Stop what you're doing right now and look to Jesus. Trust in him alone for your right standing with your creator, God the Father. How do you do that? Well, Jesus himself says that, the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, 15, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from trusting in morality. Turn from hidden sin. And believe in what Jesus has done through his death, his burial, and his resurrection and his absorbing work, his sin-canceling wrath-absorbing work on the cross and believe in him right now. The only way you can do that is by, is by God's spirit. And if you're even hearing these words and you're feeling convicted along those lines, friends, I think that's an indication that God is giving you the gift of repentance and faith to turn from yourself and trust in him. And that's how husbands are to love their wives in that same way to protect them and protect their families. Fourthly and finally, he initiates, he sacrifices, he protects, and he provides. He provides. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So in just a second, we're going to nourish our bodies on some yard bird, and it is going to be awesome. And we, all, we, we instinctively know how to do that. And in the same way, he's saying that a husband is to nourish and cherish his wife. He provides for her. He provides for her in the same way we looked at protection physically and spiritually. Physically, I believe it's the responsibility biblically of a man to provide sustenance, to provide financially for his family. Now again, let me give you just a personal uh, testimony and let me let you into the very much in process sanctification route of, of my family. Uh, as many of you know, my wife is a physician, and when we met, um, she was in her third year of medical school, and I was a young soldier out here at Fort Benning. We met. First date, I took her to uh, Shoney's Buffet. <laughs> I know how to treat a lady. <laughs> I didn't know. I was... I didn't have much sense back then, but um, I asked her that first or second date. I said, so she was in her third year of medical school. This is how ignorant I was for all you doctors in the room or medical personnel. I said, what type of doctor do you want to be? And she says, I, I think I'd like to be a pediatrician. And I remember thinking, she wants to be a foot doctor? Well, that's <laughs> all right, whatever. That's actually a podiatrist. But anyway, I didn't even know the word. So we end up getting married. I'm in the Army for a few years, and she's in doing her residency. We come back here in 1998. And she goes into private practice as a, as a full-time pediatrician working four times a day. She'd taken out a lot of loans, uh, a, a lot of loans, student loans, to go through medical center, or me to go through medical school. And, uh, and we started off marriage in a pretty good, pretty good hole of debt. And then we started having babies, four of them to be specific, and we planted a church. And um, I, I, probably the greatest stressor in our life has been that I as a husband did not lead well early on in our marriage and engineer our life in such a way that she was freed up to not have to work if she did not want to. 
And not until just recently has she gone part-time, only works two days a week now. We're totally debt-free from that medical school loan albatross that was hanging around our neck like a millstone. And not, unt not until just recently are we in a position for her to be free to orient herself to the home. Now, I, I want to say that in these past 13 years or 14 years that we've lived back here in Columbus and had children, because I'm just married to an incredibly brilliant and talented and energetic woman, she has been for much of that time, worked four days a week as a full-time physician and raised four children, and we've had a wonderful in-law, mother-in-law who lives down the street who helps us all the time. And so my, my wife has pulled all these things together, but she just happens to be a, an incredible person. But if I can look back on our marriage, one of the ways that I have most failed her and not led well was not creating a situation where we didn't always just live up to our means, but she was freed up to maybe dabble in practicing medicine if she wanted to, but she was freed up to just do whatever she wanted. And if that means, if that means that we live in a smaller home, that means we downsize, and that's part of what we did a couple of years ago, if that means you do whatever you can, men, to orient your life so that your wife does not have to work unless she just wants to, and so that she is freed up, as Titus chapter 2 says, to have her heart oriented towards the home, then I would encourage you to do whatever you can to do that. Whatever you can to do that. I'm not saying that there's some biblical mandate that women should not work out of the home. Because if we read that Titus 2 passage, we need to read also Proverbs 31 that seems to, to sp speak about the industriousness of a woman who seems to be selling things at the gate and just this beautiful sort of picture of the industry of a woman. But what I'm saying is young men, middle-aged men, whatever, live your life in such a way that you free your wife up so that she is able to set the pace of her own life and have her orientation towards the home. And if you've made a mess of that, like I did in the first decade of our marriage, oh, there's grace, friends. Oh, there's grace. And begin now to provide, to be the primary provider in your family. And just as a personal thing, and I don't want to go too deep into it, Really, for the first time in the life of our marriage, just here within this last year, is the first time in our marriage where I have actually, actually made more than my wife. And I don't mean this, maybe this is an indication of my insecure chauvinism, but it's been a sort of tick in my heart and her heart that has just been better for her and better for me. Better for me. Now, in God's providence, when the church was 20 people and most of them were college students and they were spending most of their monies on smoothies, thank God for her income at that time. Young men, do whatever you can to engineer your life so that your wife is free. Well, the goal of a husband is the good of his wife. That's what I think we're saying in these four points. And here's the spectrum that I want you to look at. Because I think men fluctuate between two airs. They fluctuate between overly aggressive or just being a wallflower. They, 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 they fluctuate between being dominant and abusive or a doormat, right? So over on the, 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 the right there, you've got a, a man that is dominant and abusive and chauvinistic and he demands a meal and he demands service and he demands clean house and he demands needs to be met and he demands children to be quiet. He demands it. He demands it. He's a dominant jerk. 
And then the other end of the spectrum is a man who's a doormat. He's passive. He just wants a beer and sports center and chips and toys, right? And those are the two ditches that men fall into. And with great freedom, the, the scriptures call us to, to be there, this Christ-like, humble leader that, that it's not to one extreme or the other, but in the middle there. A humble, Christ-like head of the family, friends. So what does that look like in your life, man? What, what, what ditch are you most apt to fall into? The dominant jerk or the passive doormat? Which are, which are you most prone to go off into, men? And which of these things, initiative, sacrifice, protection, and provision, are you weakest in? And how might the Holy Spirit be hitting you now? And how might you be encouraged by brothers around you? And for the women, I think it's the same. You've, you've got women who fall, wives fall into the same ditches. It just looks differently in women. A woman can Maybe because her husband is weak and passive and doesn't take the initiative, she inappropriately, I think, usurps his authority, and a lot of that is a reaction to the sin of the men, and she becomes overly dominant. And then, and then maybe, you know, maybe she, she's just married to a real strong, dominant guy, and she's just sort of the wallflower, whatever you say, Hunter, whatever you say, and she just kind of walks behind him with her head down. She can't make eye contact with anybody. And she, she's just a, a, a doormat. And somewhere in the middle, the Bible calls a wife to submit in an intelligent, joyful way. And here's the deal about intelligent, joyful submission. When we talk, this is why I've spent all the time on men. Because I, I, I have not yet met a woman that when a husband is leading like Christ is, taking the initiative, laying down his life, protecting, providing, giving himself up for the sake of his bride, loving her as Christ loved the church, I, I have not yet met a woman that doesn't joyfully want to follow that. It's just you're wired that way. And so somewhere in the middle there, there's this intelligent, joyful submission that the Bible calls a woman to. So, so a couple applications and then We'll be done. A few applications, and obviously there's some overlap between these areas. In the logistical details of everyday life, I think there's great freedom, right? I know different people do it different ways. Um, some husbands and wives don't, don't put anything on their calendar. Maybe they don't move the furniture, buy something for the wall. I don't know. I, I think there's great freedom depending on your personalities. But if a husband is, is laying down his life, wanting to serve, personally, the way it shakes out, I was, I was a little too persnickety about this stuff early on. You know, I have, I have pretty, pretty defined tastes, and I don't want Jennifer to hang anything. Now I'm like, eh, that's stupid. Why, why fight? Let her do what she does, man. She's so much better at it than I am. All the little stuff. I mean, just whatever, baby. It, it looks great. Because if she put something up on the wall, I wouldn't even notice it anyway. I didn't even notice, <laughs> I didn't even notice that we had, like, a, what are the plates called that they give you when you get married? China. Yeah, yeah, I... <laughs> I didn't even know that there were different patterns and that we had one, evidently. <laughs> Paper plates work good for me. but <laughs> The logistical details of life, friends, I, I think that there's just a lot of freedom in that. And I think, but if you're not talking about that, how does that work out? How are decisions made there? I think a man needs to defer a lot to his wife in that. Don't fight silly little battles like young, arrogant husbands do. Serve your wife by giving in to her preferences. Whatever she does will look better and it will smell better than anything you do. <laughs> Finances. Personal conviction. 
I think it's very unwise for a husband and wife to have separate finances. Very unwise. Very unwise. I think it, um, I think it builds in a mechanism for secrecy and sin. And however you work it out, I don't think there's any mandate that a man has to be the one that writes the checks or that a woman has to do that or whatever. But I think that the man needs to know what is coming in and going out of his home. And the final authority in major financial purchases is a husband is yielding to the preferences of his wife and a wife is submitting to her husband. If they're in a ditch, ultimately the responsibility is the husband's. But I think there's great freedom there. But if, you, if your finances are separated, I think that is very very unwise. A third area of application would be major decisions. Where to live? What church to go to? How many children should you have? Where do you spend holidays? California or Georgia? What job should you take? These are areas where a husband and wife need to slow down with each other and need to talk it out. And they need to love one another and prefer one another. And these are the areas where a husband needs to lead. He needs to initiate. He needs to bring it up. He doesn't need to wait until December 23rd to figure out what Christmas Day is going to look like. He gets ahead of that. He doesn't wait until the kid, it's, it's like a month before you've got to register the kid in kindergarten, he, and he hadn't even thought about it. He's, he's thinking about these things. If there's a job opportunity, he's not just taking it for his own career advancement. He's considering how it might affect her wife's heart. Is Columbus her hometown? What impact will it have if I move her to Tuscaloosa or Knoxville or Charlotte? Is it worth it? He prefers his wife over that. He takes her into consideration. Major decisions are important areas where a male's humble, Christ-like leadership needs to be on display. The discipline of children is mom simultaneously given the task of being the nurturer and the heavy? That's a tough place to be. Dad, I, I think, again, there's freedom in this area in our lives. But if, if mom is the one who's always bringing the heat and you're on the couch with chips watching the third edition of Sports Center that day, get off the couch, Holmes. And get into the hearts of your children and discipline your boys and girls. Don't let them talk back to, your, to their mama. Discipline your children. If you need help with that, every quarter or so, we have a parenting class here that Wayne does, and it's excellent. It's excellent. If you need help with that, come alongside. He, we'd, we'd love to help you with that. And fifthly and finally, just an application the spiritual well-being of your family. Men, do not farm out your wife's sanctification to the women's Bible study or to the group of gals that she meets at the restaurant for brunch. Do not farm out the spiritual well-being of your children to Will Hawk or to the leader of the orange room. It is your responsibility to read the Bible to your children, to pray for your children, to be their primary shepherd. Is it aided by all of these other things, by the Bible study and by the kids' church leader and by the, by the pastor of students? Yes, of course. Thank God for those things. 
but don't farm it out. It's, the buck stops with you. The knock is on your door, not somebody else's. Two final questions and we end. What should a wife do if her husband is not a Christian or not leading well? I would just commend you to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're not Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your, your, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Brothers or sisters, if you're married to a man that is not yet a Christian, let the church come alongside you. Trust in God. Don't yield to his unbelief or to his sin. That's not what submission is. But trust God that even as you model the gospel before him, God would use that as a means to soften your heart. And if your husband is a Christian and he's just not leading well, he's passive. Oh, and in a submissive, gentle way, show him a picture of what you yearn for in a sort of unnagging way. And encourage brothers in this church to come around him. Trust God. What should a husband, second question, and I end with this, what should a husband do who is failing at leading? Well, brother, first thing you need to do is repent. You need to lead by initiating repentance. You need to be the best example of repenting that your wife has seen. And you need to go to her and ask for forgiveness. And you need to get community. You need brothers around you that will help you. And you need to be the man that Christ has called you to be. A man who stands up and loves his bride like Christ loves the church. Men, you can do this. You can do this. We can do this together. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I pray now that you would take these words from the Apostle Paul and that you would Make them like an arrow that is aimed at our hearts. I pray for wives in this room who may be desperate and discouraged or dominant or maybe doormats, that by your Holy Spirit you would do what only you can do and breathe life and encouragement and Christ-likeness into their hearts. And by the power of your Holy Spirit and the help of the community of brothers and sisters that you've given to us, I pray that sanctification would happen for men that are checked out, who are not believers, or who are passive or dominant and aggressive wherever they may be on that spectrum, Lord, would you shoot the arrow of Ephesians 5 at their heart? And would you break them and humble them? Would you build them and make them courageous, Christ-like warrior leaders? For the single person in this room, 
Lord, would you cause them to turn away from despair, loneliness, self-absorption? Would they look to you? Would a young man in this room who desires to be married, Lord, would he look through the lens of 1 Timothy 5 that says that we should treat younger women as sisters in all purity? I pray for that young man who wants to be married in here that he would start running his relationships with all women through this grid of Ephesians 5, that he would lay down his life for his sisters. Lord, for a young woman in this room who desires to be married, Lord, would she settle for nothing less than a man who is on track, not perfect, but who's doing this? Would she, would she not run it primarily through the sick grid of our culture and silly little shows like The Bachelor and all this garbage that our culture feeds us, but would she look for and long for young men who are not perfect, but are who are pursuing Ephesians-like manhood? And would that be the grid by which she evaluates men? And God, ultimately, would you work a work in the homes and marriages and hearts of the people of this church not just so that we have better marriages, as glorious as that is and as much as we want that, but so that collectively we as a people might commend your gospel more clearly to a dead culture around us. Lord, would you do these things? And for those that are in this room who need to turn and trust in Jesus, would you let them see him even now? trust in him alone. Father, I pray that you do these things for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.